Welcome to the Thousand Voices podcast. My name is Mujan Askari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews with top female founders in the field of artificial intelligence. One of the common things that we see in all CEOs and entrepreneurs is having a vision. And one of the main challenges that they can encounter is how to transform their vision into a company. It can take a long time and a lot of efforts to make it happen. And as a leader, you need to be able to transfer that vision to your team and let them adopt and create their own vision. So how do you do that? In today's podcast, you're going to hear a story of one of the most inspiring leaders who went from academia to entrepreneurship and built a million-dollar company. So today with us, we have Camille Morvan, who is the CEO and co-founder of the awards-winning startup called Koshaba, which is an AI platform to help companies assess the hard and soft skills of candidates through fun games. She is also the winner of the Women in AI Awards Europe 2019. Camille has a PhD in neuroscience. She has done research and has uh, taught in universities in Japan, at Harvard University, and NYU. Welcome, Camille. It's an honor to have you with us. Hi, Mujan. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, Camille, you have an extensive background, um, actually, from academia, and then you have turned into an entrepreneur, and a rather successful one. You created Goshaba in 2014. How was this journey for you? How did you decide to take on the path of entrepreneurship? Mm, that's a good question. Um, so it's relative. It's not that frequent. People who go from an academic career to creating startups. There are a few of us, but not that many. I think what uh, triggered that desire for me is that um, I love solving problems and researching questions in depth. But what I was missing in academia was having impact on people's lives. And the reason I wanted to create Goshaba is because I wanted to kind of get out of the lab, take all of the interesting research I have conducted on cognitive biases and on decision making, and kind of make that available to a larger audience. So that was originally what um, made me want to create the, the company. And so how was it for you? Was it a hard one? Like, for example, what was the biggest challenge that you encountered along your path? Well, I think for people like me who create um, deep tech companies, um, the biggest challenge is finding the right partners and finding the right team. Um, and particularly when you come from academia, because you've been in academia, in academia, success and intelligence is defined in a very academic way. So people who are successful in academia have a certain kind of intelligence, and that's intelligence that is kind of recognized in academia, right? When you are very analytical, very uh, uh, drawn to details, uh, you like to go in depth in questions. And when you transition to the business world, for me, what I found really interesting was the fact that suddenly what will make a business successful is a little bit of that type of academic intelligence, but also 
a lot of other types of intelligences. Um, so when you, it's important, for instance, to find a business partner that is good in um, commerce, uh, sales, marketing, which are really require a completely different set of skills than uh, science requires. And I uh, was lucky enough to meet a former colleague of my older sister who um, who became my partner and is taking care of the, the business aspect. Um, and then my third co-founder is um, a person who has an engineering background and kind of, I would say, is a little bit more down to earth than me. <laughs> so I would say that the good thing of our trio is that I came with a lot of creativity, lots of ideas, kind of long term vision. Uh, Jamil brought the um, really tangible business and sales uh, background and Min brought to us a concrete down to earth um, way to get things running, right? So Jamil is my co-CEO and Min is our CTO today. Mm -hmm. Wow, that should have been a very, very exciting, exciting journey. So if you want to say, you know, what you've really l learned throughout these, like, it's now six years, right? Since 2013. What is the biggest lesson you've learned, you know, as a leader, as a woman, especially in a field that is pretty male dominated, which is AI? Um, and also, you know, being an entrepreneur, also female entrepreneur, it has its own challenges. I know that Koshaba has raised um, funds, has the actually support of so many VCs in, in France. How, how was it for you? What, what was the thing, you know, the lesson that you learned being a leader? What was it, you know, that you learned along the way and you didn't know it before? So, well, there's uh, obviously many things that I've learned along the way. Uh, one of the things that I was talking about before is really understanding the the richness that everybody can bring to the table right so when i was in academia i had teams up to five or six people um which is you know it's it's cool but it's five or six people doing research so kind of a very similar mindset here being the ceo of a technology company it's completely different because suddenly you have to um, make uh, create a community of people who don't think alike Right. So the salespeople don't necessarily think alike the engineers and the developers who don't necessarily think alike the customer success team or the cognitive scientists. So one very important thing for me was to see how you create a community and make sure that everybody is working, um, that it's fluid between teams, but everybody gets recognized for what they're bringing to the table. And sometimes there is tension, right? Because sometimes, for instance, the product team is going to say that they want, you know, three months to have a product ready because they have to test it with everybody. In the meantime, the salespeople are saying, no, we can't wait three months. So one, I think, biggest challenge and lesson that I've learned is how to make all these people work together because there's never a right or wrong answer. Um, and I think one important um, kind of compass is... Uh, values is what is it you know why did I create this company I created this company because I want to help people discover who they are and find their place in the world in the world of like in the working world but in the world in general so my vision is to help people know their strength and be able to build upon this strength um, and this is the compass I use to kind of make everybody work together in my company so I would say that's one main big lesson 
And I think there's another one I'd like to mention because it took me a while to understand that one is that eventually, I don't know, sometimes you kind of look at other people to see if you're right. So you test your ideas, you say, hey, Bob, what do you think about this idea? Hey, Barbara, what do you think about that idea? Eventually, as a leader and as CEO of a technology company, particularly in a time of crisis, is that sometimes you're alone. And, you know, it's not that you're not going to ask for help, but it's that sometimes you're the only one who knows. You're the only one who has the answer. And that, for me, was a, a hard realization, like that sometimes I just have to trust myself. After I took advice from all the competent people, I'm the only one who knows. And, you know, I have to go in the direction that I think is good for the company. A lot of the time, some people are not happy with it. But, you know, what I'm hoping and what I'm seeing is that often with time, people get to realize that this was the right decision at the time. Right, right. What was the hardest decision you've ever made? Something that was controversial and you needed to fight, you know, to to make it happen? Or maybe, you know, so many people were against it, but you, you took that decision. Well, that's a really good question. So there was one uh, very sensitive topic is the um, trade-off between quality and... Um, and speed. So, and that has been a kind of a question for us since the beginning of the company. I what I had a vision for our product that um, I don't know. I had a vision, right? So I had a vision of the product that had to look X Y Z. You know, I had like a very clear image of what the product and the games should look like. And then when uh, my CTO started working on it, um, it kind of never matched what I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. I recognized the work that he did, but it just wasn't what I was hoping for. And you don't want to be rude by saying that, okay, your, your work is not good because that's not the problem. The problem is not the work being good or bad. The question is, how much more time are we going to invest into making this vision happen? Making this product as close as possible to my vision. And then this problem has an echo uh, in the sales, uh, with the sales team as well, because then, you know, I have that vision. I know it takes a while to build. And then the sales team is like, yeah, okay, great. But we need something right now. Um, So I'm very happy after six years to see that some of the things that I had envisioned at the very beginning of the company finally showed up maybe three years after we started the company, right? So it can seem like a long time, but actually, you know, it takes a long time to develop a vision, to make it real. And, yeah. that, you know, I think that was also a realization I came to that, okay, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Because you have to align the team, you have to, everybody has to own the vision in order to be part of it. And that's what also takes time. Right. And so the, the hard decision for you was to to basically stick with your vision and just, you know, try to spend time and resources in the way yeah, I think no. The, the sorry, what I what was the the hard decision for me in that process was to accept that the product that we're delivering was not my vision at the beginning. Right. So we, we started, yeah, we started uh, commercializing something that was in the direction of what I was hoping for, but just in a direction, right? And so that was difficult for me, and it was also very enriching, very. Uh, um kind of relaxing also to see that even if you're like 10% there sometimes the product itself is already good enough because you're solving a problem that is so bad for people that they're they're satisfied with something that is only 10% of the final vision 
Right. Wow. That's that's so amazing. You said something very interesting that um, how you transfer your vision to your team, to your you know sales team, to your product team. Uh, how how are you doing that? How, how do you make sure that everybody in your company they are on board on your vision? So I think the first step that is maybe the most important is who you hire. <laughs> it, it's much, much uh, easier to convince people who are already kind of agreeing with the vision than to transform completely somebody who disagrees with the vision in the first place. So the, um, I think because our culture is relatively clear, um, we tend to attract people who already agree with the vision because what Goshaba does is that we, as I said, we help candidates understand their, their potential using cognitive games that are fun. And in that process, we respect every candidate. Um, we promote diversity in a way that uh, is relatively rare in technology startups um, in France. Yeah. One, because we give diversity to companies, but two, because we are a diverse team. So the first thing is that we're attracting people who, because we are so clearly engage in diversity we attract people who share that vision then the second thing is um you know having these discussions having these open discussions with my product team all the time saying like okay guys this is how i see things how do you see things and one positive thing at goshaba is that most people feel uh, comfortable contradicting me or my co-founders um you know discussions can be when we disagree, we disagree on ideas. We never disagree with the person, right? It never gets personal. And that helps sparking all these conversations where, for instance, my head of science, Emily, um, <laughs> she really has a vision too now, right? And I think our vision align in the long term, but the steps before that are not necessarily the same. And so we, we tend to uh, disagree on the steps and it's actually very... Um, it's very nice. And that, to me, that's what creates adhesion. That's what creates um, a unified sense that we are all going in the same direction because I'm not the one imposing my vision. I'm saying, hey, okay, this is what I wanted to do. How do you see it, Emily? How do you see it, Jamil? Like, what's your vision of the product? And it gets transformed by everybody in the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, talking about like, um, how you're basically sharing your um, your thoughts, your ideas, your vision without um, personally attack somebody. This is something that can, it's a skill, right? So it's, it's um, sometimes it's super hard. Like myself, I've been in situations that I was, you know, um, trying to tell, you know, what I believe in my, in, you know, in the company, what what my vision is and sometimes uh, I would see like people you know getting sad stopping you know talking to you and like taking it so personally it was also happening to me that when I was younger I I would give an opinion about a project and then not accepting me it would sometimes give you a, a sense of yeah yeah they are not uh, giving me value that means that I don't have value like I would take it personally how how does it like how do you really make that happen how do you make sure that people don't get things personal and how you resolve conflicts when they rise mm, that's a good question so i think the first thing is that i don't think that i am the one doing it um you know 
like I'm not the the big Goshaba judge that like goes into everybody's relationships and discussions to say, hey guys, don't take it personally, right? It's it's really is a company culture that has been infused by uh, my two co-founders and all the people we hired since the beginning. Like I want to mention uh, my very first employee, Gael, who's she's an amazing uh, woman who she really has a way to fluidify relationships, right? So, I mean, I'm mentioning Gail, but I could mention everybody in my team today. I think, so again, I'm not the one who, you know, quote unquote, makes sure that nobody takes it personally. Uh, what I am doing at my level is that, obviously, as you said, sometimes you take it personally, right? When somebody disagrees with you, you're like, is he or she not recognizing the value of my idea or whatever? And uh, these are things. So I've been doing psychotherapy and um, and coaching for since I was 16, um, and that of course is something that I worked on a lot. Is that um, you know when you if you feel excluded or you feel disrespected by somebody's comment, um, you know most likely the thing you have to work on is what makes you sensitive at a specific moment to a specific comment, and. I think uh, what we try to do is to, when we see that there is a tension, we try to just acknowledge that we agree to disagree. We let it sit. We let the the discussion sit for like a week or for a few days. And very often uh, the problem kind of solves itself because other people who are less passionate about the topic are going to also give their opinion. People who are not necessarily personally sensitive to the topic, they'll give their opinion and then it makes a big, nice soup. And, you know, that's the final, often the final decision is there's more people uh, giving their opinion, our clients, our, you know, our partners. So I guess that's how we try to not make it personal, but, you know, but also because we all really care about that vision of inclusivity. So we know that if somebody, like I know when someone disagrees with me that she's doing it because she's convinced that her, idea is the best to reach our shared goal mm -hmm. right yeah and it's very interesting because those people who you mentioned that you're gonna ask them those that are maybe less passionate about the issue they are most of the time those that they have an unbiased view because they are not neither on one side nor the other side and their views can be very valuable and <laughs> added to that soup that you mentioned Mm. And it's also because these other people are going to be the ones often, they're going to be the ones either developing it or selling it or defending it to the clients. Uh, so again, that's why I think it's important that everybody has a, a say. So, you know, I'm giving that example with Emily because, uh, you know, I was in charge of the product and the science and then I hired Emily a year ago. And that was for me a very transformative hire because suddenly I'm not the only scientist in the mix. So it used to be that when people had a science question, it would come to me and now they can come to me or Emily. And so Emily and I can disagree. I think it's great. Um, I don't think that it's good to only ask unbiased people. I think it's very good to ask people who are biased and fiercely convinced about something because I think these may be the people who have the best idea. Mm -hmm. Right. You mentioned that you started actually um, psychotherapy sessions and coaching since you were 16, right? Um, have you have you been coaching people also yourself? You've been coached yourself alone? So I've, I've coached a few women leaders in the past three years and a, f a few men, but mostly women. 
um, not professionally, um, more as a, you know, as a business leader myself. So people who, you know, recently started their companies who were a little bit more junior than me. And um, most of the time, the way I like to see myself is I'm kind of a, a gateway. I talk to these people once, twice, or three times. And then when I, if I can identify that there's a real coaching question, then I send them to a professional coach. You know, if there is problems with their business partners, if there's humane problem with other individuals, I prefer to send them to a coach because that's not my job. But as long as it's business questions I, I, and, and that I can help, then I help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, who had been your coach yourself in your career and in, in your life? Oh, I had a lot. Of, <laughs> I, I used to say that I am single-handedly uh, keeping the coaching economy of Paris running because I'm a very... <laughs> um, I've done group coaching with my business partners. Um, I am now part of a circle of uh, group, um, you know, developmental coaching. We're nine people. Um so I don't really have one. Sp- I would say I had different people depending on, on the different phases of my life, right? So I had a big leadership crisis two years ago, um, and I met that woman Valérie who helped me for a year, and she just helped me find uh, my center, like you do in martial art, right? If you're doing uh, aikido with somebody or karate, you have to find your center, you have to find your balance, and that woman is very good for that. To to be like okay. What kind of leader are you? And when you have doubt, well, solve your doubt. Like what is, you know, where does this doubt lead you? And, and you know, what's your internal compass saying? And I think for me, that was a very uh, transformative experience, actually. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what do you like in coaching? I think it's that you have a space where you can question yourself intelligently. You know, it's... Um, because I think it's good to have self-doubt. I, I actually believe that, you know, we tend to think that female leaders doubt themselves more than male leaders. I think that's mostly socially acquired. I don't think that uh, women uh, tend to be less confident, but I think that we teach girls to be less self-confident. But I do believe that this self-doubt is actually very good. I think it would be good for male leaders also to have more self-doubt and then that's where coaching comes in because, okay, you're, you're doubting yourself. Okay, great. That's a, that's a good thing. Now, what do you do with it? And um, coaching is a place where you can say, okay, I, I doubt X, Y, Z. The coach doesn't judge you. So you can go as deep as you want. You, you can, you know, whatever, like the coach doesn't judge you. So you, it's like putting all of your, you open your suitcase and you say, okay, here are the problems I have. And then the coach helps you pick one object and working on it. Actually, I, I started coaching for, for real for the first time last year. You know, during the pandemic, I needed some moments to really have self-discovery. And um, for me, like the journey was not, not necessarily you get the answer to the questions you have, but you learn how to find the answer. To yeah, exactly. To the answers. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Do, do you want to mention somebody in coaching that, that you like or? Um, yeah, actually, my personal executive and life coach uh, is Deb Crew. So I I really admire her. Mm. Um, she's been helping me a lot. Yeah, she's she's great. I I talk to her too, and uh, yeah, she's really good. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, she does also a really beautiful podcast for anybody listening to this. I, I invite them to go and discover Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast, which is mm-hmm. amazing. And, and of course, Camille's podcast too, because I know you've done a podcast with her. Yeah, I've done a podcast, a podcast with Deborah. Yeah, it was very nice. I would like to ask you the last question. And my question is, you mentioned that you had uh, your, your coach, Valerie, helping you to discover what kind of leader you are. So my question is that, what kind of leader are you? Hmm. Um, so I think when I... Uh, when I went into this business, because my two business partners are older than me and they're both males, I think I took for granted that the way they were seeing leadership was somehow more or less the way that somebody should lead a startup. And uh, with Valérie, so it's Valérie Augier, I realized that uh, I don't have the same leadership style at all as them. I mean, we're sharing values, right, on like respect and uh, diversity. And uh, um, I think the three of us are very humanistic. But then there's places where I think I can, as a leader, I leave a lot of space for communication, sharing, uh, exchanging ideas and I put myself at risk uh, which I haven't seen many male leaders do actually uh, when I say male leaders it's also because in the startup world there's so many more male leaders than female leaders that you know when you're trying to run statistics obviously you're gonna only find male leaders most of the time but I I would say like I I'm a collaborative leader so I like having everybody's opinions on things and uh, I think, so the positive thing is that I think, I hope, and I can see that people get, are very happy to work with us and they feel respected and they get very creative because they have all that space to, to speak their mind. And I think the negative aspect is that some people need a more hands-on um, mode of leadership, right? Some people really like to have a leader that is like, okay, we're going to go that way. It's going to be like this. And that, I think, is something that can be uh, difficult for some. So I tend to find partners who are uh, who, who have more of that capacity to kind of split the future in different layers of time and kind of, you know, I'm good for long term, but I, I really need people who are good for short and medium term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Mm-hmm. I, I'm actually a little bit like you too. <laughs> so partnering with different people that they have different skills and um yeah forms of um leadership that can that can be very helpful and maybe one last question so we're now in 2021 what is your biggest dream for this year well so i think for me my biggest dream is it ha- it doesn't have much to do with my company actually i um i've been watching the documentary series on Netflix called Our Planet and uh, I've always been kind of my number one worry since I'm a child is um, protecting the environment and biodiversity and I think my biggest reason for 2021 is that some of the actions that we can take that have um, a clear impact on the environment that these things can be done today right so I'm thinking for instance about protecting the oceans we know that if we uh, regulate, for instance, fishing, uh, 
Um, and uh, we make sure that there's no deep water fishing. Little fish are going to reproduce, and because they reproduce, they're going to have such a massive impact on the ecosystem and the health of the ocean. And this is something that can have, you know, if we if we regulate now for the next five or ten years, it's going to have a massive impact, right? So, I'm hoping for these kind of um, decisions that um, are quote unquote easy to take. They're not that easy, but you know, they're easier than like transforming society completely. Um, I hope that more and more of these will be taken in 2021. Mm -hmm. Wow. I actually uh, watched for the first time the documentary Mission Blue, which is basically done on, on the life of a very famous scuba diver, um, Sylvia Earle. And, and they actually basically are on a mission to create these hope zones to regulate fishing. And this is one of the dangers to the oceans that, you know, the extensive fishing to totally you know destroy ocean so this is also something um i'm also passionate about and i liked your hope thank you <laughs> thank i, I you wrote it down i wrote mission blue on my list of things to watch <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful beautiful documentary i recommend it everyone nice thank you we reached to the end of our podcast thank you so much kami it was an honor um speaking with you having this conversation thank you so much for your time Thank you very much, Mujan. Thank you uh, for this opportunity and uh, best wishes to everyone for 2021. Yeah, yeah. To you also and to Koshaba. <laughs> this was Kami Marwan, CEO and co-founder of Koshaba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thousand Voices Podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.